Well, I was thinking today um, how maybe I'm not the only one, but maybe it's true for some of you in this room. Um, have you ever had a conversation with someone, and in the conversation you realize you're speaking different languages? I mean, you're, you might both be speaking English, but you're not connecting in any way, shape, or form. I, I know it happens with spouses sometimes. I know I'm guilty of that. Like my wife literally last night said to me, did you grab your charger? And I thought she meant my cell phone charger for my in-laws. And I said, yeah, I put it in my bag. So we left and she goes home. My father-in-law texts and goes, did you leave a computer charger? Yes, I did leave a computer charger. She's that's what I told you. Like, I thought you said cell phone charger. Apparently I didn't listen. So um, we were speaking English, but I was not understanding what she was saying. I know none of you have ever done that, right? If you work in one industry, like I remember being in a small group one time with almost all teachers, and I was a non-teacher, and they started using these letters. I don't know what any of them were saying. I said, hey, can you just start over? Because you just used a bunch of acronyms for stuff that I don't know what you're talking about. And then they had like, oh, yeah, you know, because we learn languages that are appropriate for us. And so if you're a teenager today, what I'm about to say, you'd be like, yeah, I know all those words. But if you're over the teenage age, maybe young adult, like in the 20s, you're probably okay. If you're older than that, ask a teenager before you leave. So, because sometimes people use words that you don't know what they mean, and you're like not sure you want to know what they mean, and here's that list for you today, right? Riz, cap, no cap, bet, drip, slay, thirsty, fit, bay, bruh, every seventh grade boy, facts, that is facts right there, uh, mid, simp, and sus. I felt pretty good because I knew almost all those. I do have middle schoolers though, that's probably why. Right, those are words that are officially in the English vernacular everyday language, but most of us in this room, if you're over about 25, have no idea what I just said. That's okay, by the way. But here's the reality, it's not just teenagers or college students that speak words and languages that we don't understand. What happens over time is this, there are gaps in our understanding of one another because we have different backgrounds, we've come from different circumstances, Right? We have come from different generations or even locations in the world in which we have lived. And so even if it's the same language, it means something different. But we also live in a time where globalization is a real thing. Right? Like it used to be years ago, uh, just in the United States, that like, what was trendy on the coast would take like five to ten years to get to the middle of the country. Now, because of social media and all kinds of other things, what's trendy on the coast is also trendy in the Midwest. Crazy how that happens now. Right? It used to not be that way, but it is today. So I was thinking how all of those things impact us in our relationships with one another um, and how we speak and understand each other. Uh, sometimes it matters where we have come from in the background that that person's experience that we speak into. And so all of that led me to this. Um, we should be paying attention to the world in which we live. In fact, there's two stories in the book of Acts we're going to look at today, one from Acts chapter 2 and one from Acts chapter 17, about how two different people were trying to share the same message about who Jesus is, and they did it radically different, and how for, for us, we live in a world where today we should probably embrace Acts chapter 17 much more than Acts chapter 2. And you're like, I have no idea what he's talking about. Good. Okay, bear with me a few more minutes, and we'll eventually get there. But I was thinking how um, today is one of those weird weeks in the church calendar where we finished a series on Galatians last week. And we begin next week looking at the season of Advent that leads up to, to Christmas, the, the, the coming of Jesus. And today is one of those weird days where, where it just kind of like fits in there. And so I was like, what, what are we going to talk about? What is it that God might have for us today? I was thinking about, well, what does this look like for us? And, and, and I was thinking about a conversation I had this week about how um, someone was having a conversation. We're going to share that conversation later today. But, but what's it look like for us to know why we gather? 
Like, why do we gather on a Sunday morning? Why do we, why do we want to be shaped in some way as a community of people? What, what does it matter, the lessons that we learn, the things that we are taught, or the scriptures that we read? What's the point of all of that? Why do we gather on a weekly basis? And sometimes people will say something super simple. And, and honestly, it's too simplistic. Um, we'll say something like this. Well, the only goal of the message is to get people to have individual salvation. And, and in one part, we want people to know salvation in Jesus. That's really, really good. But, but to say that that's why Jesus came, and that's the only reason he came, is too simplistic. It misses a bigger picture of what Jesus came for. In fact, I would say it this way. If I was going to try to talk, talk more about what Jesus actually teaches and preaches, here's what we would say. Jesus came to set the world right. To make all wrongs right. To bring the fullness of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven on earth. Now, that would include individual salvation. But it's much bigger than that. God came to set things right through the person of Jesus. To redeem and restore all that has been broken. To bring about his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Such a beautiful picture of what could be. And so with that in mind, I started thinking about, well, how do we... How do we talk about that to people? How do we tell people that God wants to restore and redeem even our broken relationships, our families and our homes, our neighborhoods and our schools? How do we tell people God wants to fix all things that are broken in the world to restore and to redeem? And I started thinking how language matters in the way in which we do that. But in order to speak a language that people will have to understand, you and I have to understand the language they speak. And so if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, these next two texts are really kind of helpful for you. If you don't call yourself a follower of Jesus, they'll be helpful for trying to understand what it is that we're hoping people begin to understand and why we gather together. As the first text is from Acts chapter 2, and Peter understands that he's in Jerusalem, and he understands the people he's talking to. They know the law and the prophets, the Old Testament in our words. They understand all that scripture. And so Peter uses that to tell his story of Jesus. In fact, here we find from Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. 
because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out on what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, what Peter does here, if you didn't catch it, and by the way, if you're like, I don't, he's quoting stuff from Psalms and Joel, and I have no idea what he's talking about. If that's you today, it's not honestly that surprising. And honestly, I'm going to say it's okay. Here's why. He's talking to people who grew up with the Old Testament being what they learned and lived by. In fact, they were the scriptures they taught in their schools and they learned in the marketplaces. They would have recited them in their homes. They knew them everywhere they went. It was their everyday language. And so for him to use that language, they already understood it. But for you and I, most of us didn't grow up Jewish. We didn't grow up learning those every single day. We didn't know them. Maybe, maybe you've grown up in church and so you know some of those things. But, but I want to give a caveat today. Did you know that in our community, over 80% of the people who live in Muskegon County don't have a church they call home? So which means that if you and I are going to enter into them with a conversation about Jesus, if we did what Peter did here and we started with the Psalms and Joel, we're probably wasting our time because they don't care about the Psalms or Joel. But Peter, what Peter has come to know is this. Jesus has transformed his life. He was someone who betrayed Jesus right before his death. He's come to know his forgiveness in Jesus, and he's come to know it set his life right, and his past did not have to define his present or his future. But he was operating in a mode in which he knew the scriptures and the people he was talking to knew the scriptures. But what's so fascinating about the scriptures is that not long later, later right, 15 chapters later, in fact, um, Paul approaches the same idea, getting people to know about Jesus, radically different. Why? He's got a different audience. The message is the same that both Peter and Paul are sharing, but the way in which they go about it is radically different. And that, for us, is probably good news. And we might want to lean in and to listen to how Paul goes about this. And so I'm going to read this text from Acts chapter 17, and then we'll talk about the difference of these two texts together. Here's what Paul says. And by the way, Paul begins at almost every spot where he talks about people in the Scriptures. He begins from a place of radical love for them. In fact, it's probably important for us to recognize that Paul usually never speaks unless he's moved by the work of God's Spirit out of love for people. The lesson for you and I, if we're not saying it from love, 
If we're not moved by the Spirit of God, we should probably keep our mouth shut. Right? Because often then we'll say things we're going to regret and things that are not helpful to the work of Jesus in the world. But here's what Paul says. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Oropagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Rapagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples but by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. For God did so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Arapagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Now, Paul does some pretty incredible stuff here, but I, I couldn't help but notice how he begins by going to the Arapagus, which means rock of Ares, and Ares was the god of war. And so he goes to the place of god of war to talk about the prince of peace. Such a cool picture. I can't notice the contrast between those two things. In fact, what we begin to recognize, if you know anything about like, Greek culture, especially in the first century, Athens was the place of learning. It was the place that was central to all kind of Hellenistic culture. If you were going to be someone of anything, if you were an intellectual of any kind, Athens was where you went. And you would go there, and you would speak about all the philosophies of its day. It was the Harvard or Oxford of its day. 
There, it was the place where people would show up and have conversation. And so Paul does what's so incredible. He takes things that people there already believe to be true, and he begins to talk to them about Jesus in light of those things. So one of the things he does, he quotes their own poets when he says, in him we move and live and have our being. He's quoting a poet. We are his offspring, again, quoting Greek poets. Why? Because for me to have a connection here, I've got to talk to you what ways you already understand the language you already speak. And then he does this really cool thing. He says, I see that you're very religious, right? He's observant of the people he's talking to. He recognizes their everyday way of life. And he goes, hey, um, not that you're like, oh, he's not pointing fingers because I see like you're really religious. In other words, I see that religion matters to you. I see that what you believe is important to you. In fact, I see you have an altar to an unknown God. What, what if... Right? He then begins to use the Socratic method, which, right? What if, what if I could tell you about that unknown God? In fact, what if that unknown God is God of all gods? What if that unknown God is the God? What if there is nothing above him? He is above all things. What if really in him we move and have our being? What if that God, what if he's the creator of all things? And so he's observant of the people. He asks a question of who they might be. And then he doesn't point out everything wrong with what they believe. I think that's an incredibly important thing in this picture. But he begins to tell them about who Jesus is and invites them into knowing him. And it says some began to believe and others began to ask more questions. They were leaning in, wanting to hear more. Some people rejected him, but others leaned into the way in which he approached this because it's such a powerful picture for us that, that I think for you and I, that, that we would be wise to understand the way that Peter and Paul went about these differences. In fact, one of the things that's important for us to know, Peter was really only effective in sharing the good news of Jesus among Jews. We have nothing that tells us he was good at all of talking to Greek or non-Jews. Now, why is that? He didn't have the language for it. He could only speak in the language of the Jews. And so when Paul learned the language of both, and he could speak in either place, he understood his cultural context and could speak to people about Jesus in ways that they would understand. And so you're like, okay, what's the point for you and I? What would happen if you and I began to understand our own culture and our own context? And we too could speak about Jesus in our everyday language in ways that might matter. In fact, Peter and Paul were both formed by the world in which they live, and so are you and I. Whether we want to be formed by it or not, we are. And so I was thinking, well, how do I help us think a broader picture of this? And so um, I can't speak about Eastern thought because I'm just not that smart about Eastern religion and Eastern thought, but I can talk about Western world and how we got where we are today. So by the way, um, some of you are going to love the next five or seven minutes or so and think it's awesome. Others of you will be like, I'm checking out and not paying attention. So just bear with me for like five to seven minutes. Um, and, and I think it's pretty, pretty helpful for us to understand how we got to where we are today. Right? So I'll begin with the Greeks and the Hellenists even before the days of Jesus. We begin with Socrates and the Socratic method and this idea that we're going to ask questions or get us where we want to go. And then we talk about Plato comes along and he talks about the spirit being good and the body being bad and this dichotomy of the two, these opposites. And then we go to Aristotle who talks about virtue. And he was a student of Plato. In fact, Aristotle is probably the one that's credited with spreading the idea of this thought of virtues all throughout the Western world. Why? Because he's the one who mentored Alexander the Great, the conqueror. And that eventually brings us to the days of Jesus, and then we find this kind of contrast, and the whole world is Roman, as far as everyone is concerned. And then in 325 AD, something happens that really changes the shape of the Western world. Constantine declares Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. 
You're like, well, okay, what, what's that mean? Well, all of a sudden we enter into a season that really lasted until about the last hundred years called Christendom. Right? The idea that the, the nations would all like push the idea of Christianity and they would promote it and be proponents of it, not persecutors of it. So for almost 18, 1900 years, that became the next thing that happened. But then in 476, Rome fell. It was destroyed. And then we entered from what we could say is 500 AD to about 1500 AD, a period of time we call the medieval time or the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. Side note. We call it the Dark Ages, the only time in human history when the church was kind of in complete power. There's a lesson for us in that. We probably shouldn't long for power if we call ourselves followers of Jesus. It just leads to corruption. Then we have this kind of Renaissance period known as the Renaissance in the 15th and 16th centuries. And it was kind of this rediscovering of Greek philosophy and Greek classical thought and, and art. And it was kind of this movement of things being transformed and changed. And a beginning of a thought called humanism, like that people have this intrinsic value, but, but not necessarily connected to a god. And then the scientific revolution was from 1543 to 1687. And there was a radical transformation of the way we thought about medicine and science and math and even the cosmos, right? All these kinds of rapid developments took place during this season, which led to what we call the Enlightenment from 1685 to 1815. And during the Enlightenment, this big push for individual expression, individual liberty and religious tolerance, which led to what we call modernism from 1800 to really 1949. And in modern thought, individual expression is so important, experimentation, moving away from societal norms. In fact, some things that we make sense in American culture, the gold rush, the roaring 20s, those happened in America during the season, right? It was this belief that maybe because of our humanistic value that we could reach a place of utopia. In fact, it's why in World War I, we called it what? The war to end all wars. By picking up our own bootstraps, we can make the world the way it's meant to be. Also, the Industrial Revolution, which changed what people thought and globalized the world from 1760 to 1840. But then World War II happened, and the idea of utopia was gone. And people didn't know what to do with that. We entered into a new philosophical time in thought. It's called postmodernism, and we might be in now today post-postmodern. I don't, I don't know, like that's a whole different conversation to get into. But in postmodern thought, here's the whole point. That we're going to deconstruct all those things that we held tightly to. By the way, some of you hear deconstruction, you freak out a little bit. Don't freak out. Deconstruction is not bad. When there's a lack of reconstruction, it is destructive. But the idea that we would understand the why behind things, that's probably a pretty good thing for most of us. And so there was a dismissiveness of all things. And so we, we're going to create our own truth. Though. Like My truth is relative to your truth. You can believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I want to believe. And they're both equally valid. But except the problem became for those of us who began to look at this, at some point something is still true or it's not true. And this led to all kinds of issues with the things that have been deconstructed and shifts. We have nothing that we hold too tightly. Everything's fluid. What do we grab onto? And it led to, in the words of Mark Sayers, in the absence of a story or foundation that gives hope or meaning, life has become a never-ending quest for pleasure and experience. Instead of being good, people want to feel good. In other words, do whatever makes you happy. Be true to yourself. But the truth is, that's not even new. That takes us back to Epicurean thought and Greek philosophy, where it's just do what makes you feel good. It's not a new thing. It didn't work then, and it's not really giving us much hope today. 
In fact, if all these ideas and humanistic thought would bring us to the place where the highest good for all people is what we'd actually long for, people would be happier than they've ever been before, but we know that's just not true. In fact, here's a side note, by the way. Um, the world is safer with less violence, less poverty, less hunger issues, more education than at any time in human history. And that is actually not up for debate. That is quantifiable. Like, we can prove that. And yet, mental health issues are dramatically on the rise. People aren't really sure who they are. We're wrestling with the issues of identity and purpose and greater levels than we've ever known before. Why? Where's where... In my humble opinion, when we seek whatever makes us happy, we're not connected to a greater story about God's redemption in the world. We're not connected to something beyond ourself. Then all of a sudden, we become the center of our own universe. And it doesn't take long for any of us to notice that we're really not the center of anyone's universe. And it messes us all up. In fact, in the world of social media, these words by Rich Viotas talking about the temptation of social media says this. The world says, show yourself, prove your worth, make a name, build a platform. I began to think, who am I apart from the retweets and the likes? Why am I so enamored and preoccupied with the quantity of voices approving and affirming me? How can I say that my identity is grounded in God's love when I give most of my attention to approval of people I've never even we live in a world that, through social media, creates a vacuum. Um, I don't know if you know this, but by the way, it, it, it just, whatever you like, it just keeps giving you more of. It's like a drug. And so whatever you long for, there's algorithms, literally, there's all kinds of science that you can read about this if you want. You can go Google it and it'll tell you. But, but they literally will give you what you want and more of it so that you begin to only hear from people like you, who think like you, who act like you, and want what you want. That's it. We lose the ability to have conversation, right? Just yesterday, I was talking to a friend of mine who was my intern about 15 years, if, years or so, give or take. Um, uh, and he's done middle school ministry for the last 15 years. And so we're just talking about that, and we've got both young kids, and we're talking about what we're doing with our kids, and, I, and, I, and we're just talking about cell phones. And I was like, yeah, my kids are going to have a dumb phone um, because I don't want them to have access to anything because it's so much of a destructive. We're talking about why. And he's like, yeah, no, we're trying to navigate that and screen time and talking about all these things. And, and then we started talking about social media. And by the way, this, this is what I'm about to say next is for me as a dad and for my kids, not necessarily for you, but I'll, but I'll explain why. Uh, my kids won't have social media until they leave my house like they graduate from high school. Because every study shows you it is messing them up big time. And so I, just for me, and I said, hey, to my kids, I tell them now, like, hey, you can tell your friends your parents stink. I don't care. I'm good with that. I don't care. But I care about you too much to let this stuff destroy you. I care about too much for you to wonder whether someone liked your stuff or shared your stuff or whether someone said something about you. Because here's the thing. If they say it on there and you don't have it, you never really know. Kids are mean enough on their own, right? Like we've probably been in high school, middle school. It's tough. Like I said, not, you don't have to do that. But we're, we're taking that step, not because I don't love my kids, but because I love them too much. Because I, I think most of us are wrestling within a postmodern world. What does it look like when everything has been stripped away? Who am I? What do I stand for? And if I think I feel drives our behavior and drives who we are and drives what we do, I mean, what happens when I don't feel good? 
What happens when what I long for and what I want really is not good for me and it destroys me? What, what becomes a thing? Because here's what we find. Humanism does have some good, but it ultimately falls short. Utopia doesn't work because there's nothing central to hold a hope to unless that thing is Jesus. And this leads again and again, over and over again, to emptiness and suffering and hurting among people. Even in a world that is safer and less violent and full of less poverty and more food than any time in human history. And so I think these words from Mark Sayers might be prophetic for us today. He says this, we want the kingdom without the king. By the way, if you're curious, the kingdom, the king is Jesus. We want the kingdom without the king. We want all of God's blessings without submitting to his loving rule and reign. We want progress without his presence. We want justice without his justification. We want the horizontal implications of the gospel for society without the vertical reconciliation of sinners with God. We want society to conform to our standard of moral purity without God's standard of personal holiness. And by the way, that last line is a shot to those of us in churches. If you didn't catch it, I'll read it again. So think the we is those who are part of a church in this. We want society to conform to our standard of moral purity without God's standard of personal holiness. We're called to live as a particular people in a particular way. And sometimes we get lost in, in like either or thinking, which messes us up more, right? We think things like this, that if we're just more progressive or more conservative, if we're lean more left or more right, then things would be right. Said differently, the problem with left or right, progressive or conservative, is that at the end of the day, they don't look like Jesus or his kingdom. They don't represent the kingdom of God. Whatever you define those things as. But Jesus defines the kingdom of God for us again and again throughout the Gospels. So what's my point in all this? Peter and Paul wanted to see the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. But sometimes like Peter, maybe we've grown up in a world that was Christendom. And we've come to realize we live in a post-Christian world. And so maybe our language has to change. We have to understand the world differently than we've ever understood it before. And so we need to understand our context to speak to the context of the world in which we live. Neither Peter nor Paul, you notice, changed the message of Jesus. But they approached it from radically different perspectives. They understood the people they were talking to. They understood the world in which they were living. Do you and I, can we say the same? Do we recognize we have been shaped from the time of the Greek philosophers all the way through the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, modernity to post-modernity to whatever post-postmodern we are right now, I don't really know, right? Have we noticed that we've been shaped by all those things too? Whether we want to admit it or not, it's still true. It doesn't make it less true that we haven't been shaped by them. All of Western thought has been shaped by it. But what might happen if we begin to be shaped by the person of Jesus more and more? What if you and I recognize we didn't grow up in Jewish circles, so maybe quoting from the Psalms or Joel isn't going to help our neighbor come to know Jesus, but maybe just maybe embodying the message of Jesus just might. Maybe just maybe what we find is this, that we live in a world that is constantly forming us into something. Let's choose to recognize it. Let's not stick our head in the sand. Let's become more intentional in how we live. Let's be people who are not just formed, but transformed by the work of Jesus. The world desperately needs the church not to ignore the world that's around us, not to put our head in the sand, not to think things are just going to go away or to get better or whatever that might look like. What it desperately needs for us is to keep gathering together week in and week out, just like we're doing right now. 
The world desperately needs for people to live who are submitted to Jesus. If followers of Jesus would submit to him in every aspect of our life, the world would look radically different. It's not by embracing the spiritual practices day in and day out, by prayer and meditation and silence and solitude and fasting, literally not eating food. Why? Because we can crucify the flesh so that it's not what lives in us. Right? In the words of John Mark Comer, you would starve the flesh to feed the spirit. So I, I get this. And by the way, if you're a young person here today, like a teenager, young adult, um, one of the phrases I hate by the way, and you probably hate too, is like, oh, young people today. I absolutely hate that phrase. Absolutely hate it. Because you know who's more than likely going to reach their own generation is the teenagers and young people today? Probably not you or me. I wish I could, right? I hope to have an influence and impact, but at the end of the day, people most suited to reach their own generation are the people from that generation. So here's my challenge for you guys. Don't be like my generation. We are really good at deconstructing and destroying stuff. We have not been as good about reconstructing some things. We were quick to dismiss some of the things of the ancient church and not to embrace them. But what would happen if you begin to embrace Jesus in such a way that it would lead to life change in the world around us? What would happen, maybe, just maybe, if we began to say, hey, I'm not, I'm not concerned for the church of tomorrow or the church of today. I'm not at all, honestly. It's God's church. I'm not scared at all. He cares about it more than I ever could. And so the young person in the room, like, pursue Jesus with all that you are. And what you'll find is you'll speak a language that will make sense to people, that will lead to their transformation and change the world around you. In fact, I would say this way, it's why we want to create more and more conversation, because we recognize some people do need to tear some stuff down in order for it to be rebuilt. It needs something that's foundational. And so we want to create spaces and moments for conversation where we can wrestle with things that we've heard or said about church or Jesus that are just bad. We want to acknowledge they're bad. That's why we do a thing called Alpha that'll start up again that the Ben Rachel Carlson will lead in, on Tuesdays starting in February, right? Like, it's just a, a place in which we'll have a conversation around different issues of scripture or faith and go, well, can we wrestle with this? Yes, please, ask questions. Be okay with rocking the boat a little bit. That's welcome. It's probably tough to do on a Sunday morning in this room. Not probably the best place for it. You want to buy a cup of coffee? Let's do it. We'll talk about it. We can talk through whatever it might look like. We're going to wrestle with these conversations because that's literally what Paul did. So you've heard it said, like you've talked about these unknown gods, but what if I told you about who this God might be? In fact, this, just this week, I was um, texting with a guy who uh, knows I'm a pastor. We, we, we connect some, and um, he is not a Christian, says he's not a Christian. Like, um, in fact, so he texted me, and it was a funny text because he texted me like, in the middle of a conversation, but I didn't know the first half of the conversation. Literally, I didn't know the language they were talking about. So he sends me this text, and it's basically uh, a friend. He goes, a friend of mine says, I should just believe in Jesus so that... Um, I'm going to paraphrase the words so that I can get it like a get out of hell free card, right? Because if it's true, then I just don't have to go to hell and go to heaven. And he goes, but that feels like kind of pretty cheap to me. Like, I, like it's kind of not real. And I said, actually, I'm with you. I think that's incredibly cheap. Like that's, that's like a waste of like, because you don't really believe then, right? It's like, if maybe there's no better thing. I'm like, no, like he's like, because if I believe in this, I want it to reorient my whole life. I want to change my life because I know I'm going to have to change if I believe this to be true. And so we went back and forth and probably texted for like an hour and said, hey, we should just grab another cup of coffee and talk some more about this. And we've been talking for years now, by the way. Still doesn't follow Jesus. Hope he will someday. But, but he's like, I don't want anything cheap. I don't want to be like kind of half in, half out, like just so I can like not go to hell kind of thing because that doesn't feel real to me. And I was like, no, I'm with you. Like I have way more respect for you saying like, I want to be all in or not at all. 
In fact, I said that we keep having this conversation because um, we keep having this conversation because of things like this, by the way. Um, this was in the mail this morning at the church. Um, it, someone sent a letter using our, our return address that says CPC, like Connection Point Church, and they sent it out to some address. Thankfully, it didn't get there. I have no idea how many were sent, but here's why I'm talking about it this morning. If it's you, I hope you've had a good heart like Paul or Peter, um, but please stop. <laughs> Uh, don't use our address. We, we, have, we actually have little cool things you put on envelopes, like stickers, or they're printed that way. Um, because this is what it was. It was like this thing that started with a fatal attraction. Like, what, what happens if you're buried alive and, like, literally trying to scare the hell out of people? And then on the back it says, do you want to burn or do you want to choose Jesus kind of thing? Um, so we did not send this if you got these in the mail. Uh, there's two of them there. We did not send them. And if you did, please stop. But why would I talk about that? Why would I bring that up this morning? Other than, like, it was irritating to me to get the mail and see that this morning. Because I don't think it helps paint a picture of who Jesus is. Do I think you and I get to choose whether we spend eternity with him or or not? Yeah, and you know what hell is? Hell is the absence of the presence of God. Some of us have walked through hell in this life. Hell is where God is not present. Hell hell is where we choose to reject God's love in a way that, like, I don't need to talk about that, but I do need to say this, that what happens when you begin to into relationship with Jesus, and you come to know the fullness of God's love. It's why we sing a song about how deep the Father's love. It's why just a moment we'll sing about the reckless love of God that pursues us, because God loves you more than words could ever express. The goal is not to scare the hell out of you, because that kind of relationship, fear-based, will only get you so far. It will not get you into following Jesus with all that you are. But if you come to know the God who loves you, who pursues you, who understands the context of your life, then what you begin to find is this. Maybe, just maybe, it's real. Maybe, just maybe, I will trust my life to him. Maybe, just maybe, this idea of salvation for me is something I will accept and believe and long for. And then I'll come to know the God who, it's not just I want to save some people, but it's I want to redeem everything that's broken and make all wrongs right and restore everything from the cosmos on. That's why even Paul writes that all creation groans for the redemption of all things. And so maybe just maybe this morning, maybe you and I need to have another encounter with a God who recklessly loves us and pursues us and cares for us. Maybe for some of us, we've brought up in churches where the language has been really hard for us to understand, right? It's like some of the teen lingo I used earlier, like, I don't know what the heck that was, but bro, please stop. Whatever it might be, God wants you to know his love in a way that would change everything. And so this morning, if you've never experienced that love and Jesus says, just follow me. Just come to know me. Give me your life. Trust it to me. And at the end of the day, you can come to know the life that leads to life where death never really even breaks in. And it happens when we come to say, Jesus is Lord. We begin to recognize that Jesus died for you and I so we can know the fullness of God's love. Will you stand and pray with me this morning as we prepare to sing together? Father, we thank you for the way in which you love us, the way in which you come near the way in which you desire for us to know your love in a way that changes everything, for us to know that you long for us to be connected to you in a way that would lead to life in this life and the life to come so the kingdom of God would break into the here and the now of our everyday life. We're being formed and shaped every single day, but Father, will you help us to be formed and shaped by you and your love and by your Son? May we recognize if we're not careful, we become the center of our own universe and that leaves us fleeting and longing for all kinds of things. But may we recognize that you can be Lord of our life and in that we'll find our proper place and perspective. We hope us this day to find our lives resting in you.
that we'd come to know your love in a way that would be life-changing and life-giving. And so, Father, will you help us to be your unique people in this world, to understand who you are, what you have called us to be. We pray all of this in your son Jesus' name.